0: On this episode of Starting Point. One of the biggest things is to be a sponge. I think you don't know what you don't know. I think it's important to come into a space with a blank slate. There's a lot of articles and things out there about what annual giving is. But to be a sponge, research, I think one thing that really helped me early on is, you know, allocating an hour out your day to do research on the trends that are happening.
1: That's Tyrell Warren Burnett talking about the importance of being a sponge and soaking up information and ideas as a way to better yourself as a fundraising professional and achieve success in annual giving. I'm Dan Allenby. Welcome to Starting Point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. I am so pleased to have with us today Tyrell Warren Burnett. Tyrell is the senior director of annual giving at the Oregon State University Foundation. Tyrell, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me for your podcast. Excited to talk to you about all things annual giving and you know my personal journey into fundraising.
1: Yeah, well we've uh, uh, we've really enjoyed getting to know you over the years, and you know you've done. Uh, some great work for us teaching in the past and uh, um, getting to know you has been, has been great. And so what we were hoping is we could just talk with you a little bit and uh, give our listeners a chance to hear how you got into this field. You're definitely recognized as the leader in, in the space of annual giving. And uh, let's do that. Let's go back. Why don't you tell us about your starting point?
0: Yeah, well, I think like, like most fundraisers... Um, you kind of fall into it i think now there's a little bit more intentionality with going into annual giving and fundraising but i think 95 percent of the fundraisers now will tell you they fell into it i fell into it much like uh most fundraisers so i think my journey started back at uh washington state university uh goku where are you from originally i'm from michigan so born and raised in, in lansing kind of to paint the picture uh before i got to washington state university so uh, born and raised in Lansing, which is the capital of Michigan, uh, went to the same high school as Magic Johnson, so that's a uh, right. a, a point there. You know, Lakers legend, uh, uh, and then end up going to Michigan State. So, stayed pretty local um, to go to the, the the college, and within that great college experience. And you know, as we related to fundraising, a lot of what your college experience translates well to you end up giving back in some shape or form. And I think that's. Somewhat, somewhat that has shaped my career path is get, being able to get back in some shape or form. And as, as I look back at my career, wh- where things started, each one of the places I've been have been land grant institutions. I went to a land grant. I worked at two land grants. So I think that's been kind of my calling card is working for institutions that kind of helped to create access. Uh, and it goes back to, I think, my high school story with being in a college prep program called Upper Bound. Um, and Upper Bound was a program in which we, I uh, went to campus every summer to really prepare us to be college ready, uh, and that was at Michigan State's campus. So I spent my whole high school summer at Michigan State's campus getting used to, spinning in the mind frame of being a college student, and that translated to me eventually going to Michigan State. I did unsigned admissions um, during one of the upper bound sessions in which we do tutoring on Mondays, and then was able to get through an upper bound and had an amazing experience at, at Michigan State.
1: What did you study at Michigan State?
0: Uh, I studied retailing. When people think of retailing, they think of, oh, it's just like Sears or Kmart. Those the old school ones. Kmart doesn't really have a lot of stores now and really everyone's bankrupt, but wanted to be uh, a retailer and what that consisted of really being a buyer. So really looking at whether it's men's merchandise or a particular merchandise within the store, really forecasting sales. And it's a lot of math that goes into that and being able to look at trends and how does that translate to you kind of forecasting things that are going to be in the store. Was that in the business school? Uh, It was actually in the communication arts and sciences. Uh, So it was like paired with advertising. And initially I wanted to be an engineer. So like that didn't really work out. So like most college students kind of pivoted majors like midway through my college career. But I think I I kind of found my niche because at that time I was working at Best Buy and a couple other different retailers. And during that time, they're going through... What they call customer centricity, which they're doing like a lot of uh looking at consumer behavior and how does that affect the when a customer comes into the store, you tell her your different approach uh, to different things. And that's helped me a lot as I kind of progress in my career. I kind of look back on those experiences for the for-profit and the things that they were able to do there and how that translates to what
1: we're doing now. I gotta ask because I will admit that. I have sometimes described annual giving when I'm trying to explain what it is to someone who doesn't know anything about the world that we operate in. I have actually used the term retail to kind of describe annual giving. And I wonder, I didn't know this about you, but having that been a, your background and something you've studied, would you say that's a fair description?
0: I, I'd say it's a
1: very accurate description because
0: really, at, when I was working at per, for Best Buy at that time, they were creating personas. And yeah. then this was early 2000s when they were doing all their persona mapping, looking at uh, how people were entering to the store. They had different themes. They had the soccer mom, they had the millennial, they had, you know, the person that was had a lot of money and wanted the latest and greatest tech. And they kind of built different sales models based on those different demographics that I, I, I relate that back to annual giving. You know, you look, you're basically doing persona mapping. You're looking at different segments and populations that you have within your donor base and then from there how do you tailor a particular marketing strategy to really fit that particular uh donor base and i think now annual giving in general is really a it's a glorified marketing shop to a degree um i think the the mark i always tell people this the marketing work that we do i think it rivals what nike or what a fortune 500 company does because we can't necessarily predict the experience that they had at the institution and as we know the experience that they have at the institution, you know, will decide whether or not they want to give back to your institution. And if they had a bad experience, you really have to do a lot more relationship building to even engage and get them to make a gift. So I think the work that we do, I think it's hard sometimes because it's almost like a needle in the haystack. You are trying to find the, the passion point, the ping point, only using a certain set of characteristics that you have in your database. And that may not be the right characteristics that you want to use. So I think Uh, The retail example is a really good one in the evolution of of how annual giving has been
1: described. And so it's sort of taking in the same way that a customer might have a certain experience at Best Buy and understanding that experience and then using that as a way to communicate and market future products and services to them. I think what you're saying is in annual giving, we need to understand the student experience. And, And not every student has the same experience. They study different things. They play different sports. They some uh actually we just had a guest on last week Our, your friend my friend gloria gooseby was talking about um the sort of affinities and that a lot of times there are affinity groups we think of affinity as like a, a a positive word but sometimes there are affinity groups and they some of their sometimes their experience was not a positive one but sometimes that that negative experience bonds them together as an affinity and so we talked about the institution, you know, what does the institution do? Can you sort of overcome negative affinities?
0: No, I would say, like, I think that's been like the core of, like, my approach in annual giving and fundraising. And I think once I kind of got the job at Washington State, I think I look back on all of my for-profit experience at Best Buy, but also working at a company called Moneyball Square, which... Um, they're actually today, it's 517 Day in Lansing, which is the area code. Um, They're opening their war- headquarters. But my experience, they are really running the operations there, as well as handling a lot of their email marketing. It really allowed me to see um the four Ps as they talk about it within marketing. The four Ps really applied to annual giving. I really took that philosophy and applied it to what I was doing at Washington State. So I had no previous uh, annual giving experience within that I think it just clicked early on, like instead of talking to a consumer, you're talking to a donor, but the same marketing principles still apply. Where are you looking at the product, which is the university and how can you market the product within that?
1: Yeah, no, you said the four P's. I was, I was sitting here trying to think to myself, what are those four P's? So one's product.
0: Product, place, price, and placement.
1: Taking those marketing principles, those sort of things that retailers would apply, you think they're very applicable in annual giving?
0: They are, because the prices you're essentially looking at. What's the entry point to make a donation? Yeah, ask them. Product is the university you're selling the product. How do you get someone to invest in the university at a particular price? The placement or location can be where they're at demographically or where you know what location they want to give to at the institution, Uh, and then from there. Promotion really looks at how are you marketing the different things that you have at the institution to um, someone within a consumer environment. So now you've kind of taken that for-profit lens and applied it to what you're doing uh, from an annual giving lens. I think that's really, it clicked early on, like, oh, I've been doing this already. It may not have been within annual giving, but I've been doing marketing like this already. And I think that's really what made my transition at Washington State really easy um because I've been knowing a lot of that work already
1: do you think annual giving professionals the directors of annual giving and those that you know in, in any aspect of annual giving not just the directors do you think they do enough sort of thinking along those lines like taking the concepts like the 4 Ps or thinking about retail strategies is there enough in your mind done to sort of adapt annual giving or do you think we sort of try to treat it like it's its own separate field like well we're in we're in nonprofit fundraising. We're in fundraising. You know, a lot of people don't understand fundraising, and so um, maybe they think of it as just something separate. Do you think others get that and do that too, or?
0: Um, I, I think if you don't have the necessary business background, you may not apply it. And I, um, I think having that business background it just opens up your mind frame on how to change things systematically. We really look at a big picture, and me going back to grad school to get my master's in business administration really open my eyes into really how the thought process into things, how to really look at things from a big picture lens. So I think having that business background definitely helps. I think now you're starting to see a lot more people think outside of the box and not necessarily think up in terms of the traditional nonprofit lens that we've historically done it. Uh, and I think that's where you're we're starting to see a lot of the innovation from the last really decade Within higher ed, have been within annual giving, and a lot of that is taking some of the things that have been working for uh, for profit for forever and applying it to that annual giving lens. You know, marketing automation—they've been doing that for forever for in the for profit, but now you are starting to see a lot more higher ed institutions do marketing automation. AI, AI has been around for a while, but now AI has really been at the forefront of a lot of annual giving strategies, as well as sales enablement technology. You know companies have been using that to you know, get people to buy products or get business to business uh standpoint and really uh utilizing that to warm your clients for a particular product. And now we're starting to see those same techniques and strategies apply to what we're doing from an annual giving lens. And I think that's where you're starting to see the evolution and really people starting to take a lot of those nuggets from what the for-profit is doing and applying it to annual giving, just knowing that we're not going to be able to do everything that Amazon is doing or everything that Target or all these other companies are doing. But there is small nuggets that you can kind of take from that and apply to what you're doing. And I think that's um, something that people always forget. They try to think big, oh, we need to do all these things from A to Z. But there are things you can do from A to C that really can move the needle within your strategy. And you don't really have to focus on every little thing between between A to Z that's that another company is doing, there's some nuggets that you can really apply. And I think that's where the movement has really been the last past couple of years and really taking those minute strategies that really apply to that particular institution because every institution is different.
1: I don't always necessarily think that being a first mover, if we can use that term. So like if, if the Amazons of the world are a first mover with technologies and if you think that sometimes universities or schools and their annual giving programs in particular are sort of slow to adopt i think when you say that when when someone says something like that it can sound like a negative but I, sometimes i think not being the first mover can have its advantages too and you sort of you can be a little more thoughtful and sort of let others sort of experiment and make some of these mistakes and then figure it out and maybe that's where we are right now you mentioned AI, artificial intelligence, which you know you, you'd have to not be paying attention to recognize that this is a this is a big deal now. And I was actually just reading an article yesterday; it was rather terrifying, actually. Sort of oh, talking, about it. and it was it was. Uh, we're hearing more and more warnings about well, artificial intelligence could get out of hand, and now would be the time to sort of set some of these things in place, but. I don't think that's what we want to talk about on this episode, but you mentioned yeah. <laughs> you know, the application of, of artificial intelligence in, in the fundraising annual giving world. I mean, is there, I'm curious, like what, what would be an example of how like a, an annual giving program, and even if it's not happening now, what would you guess in a couple of years we're going to start seeing annual giving programs doing as a way to sort of apply or utilize artificial intelligence? Is there an example you can think of?
0: Yeah, I think. Thinking into the future, I think I've, I've had some time to think about how AI affects our work. We've been doing AI for five years at Oregon State University, so I think we're ahead of the game, uh, which comes with pros and cons. I think as you talked about being uh, late adapters has its, it's um, I think, pros to it. But I think for us here at Oregon State, I think we've been ahead of the game. We started using AI back in 2018, and a lot of that started within annual giving. And a lot of that was doing predictive modeling on people's likelihood to make a thousand dollar gift or make a gift via email, make a gift through direct mail. Um, so we use a lot of AI initially for segmentation. Uh, and, um, we still continue to use that for segmentation. And then that kind of evolved with using, uh, uh, within the, the system that we use. Um, there are different ask arrays that you can utilize, um, using AI and predictive ask ask so we started to use those ask within all of our direct mail pieces and you know with ai the more you use the data the more you get that not uh positive and negative interaction the more it's going to learn and the more it's going to create a more sustained uh algorithm that's going to give you some good strategies to use from that so it kind of started from there and then since it's evolved into really a holistic strategy that we use at the foundation not only from an annual giving lens but also from major gifts to plan giving, how we're utilizing this for the enterprise, not only for annual giving, but for the enterprise. But to correlate it back to annual giving, some of the things that we've done lately, um, our online giving forum is built through AI. So now we're taking that same uh, algorithm and taking all the data points that people on, how people are making gifts and being able to utilize that. And then we made the decision back in January um, with the AI System that we have, um, there's an integrated email marketing platform built within it. So now we're able to see from start to finish creating a list, sending the email out through AI, and now seeing if they are able to make a gift through our online giving portal. You know, historically through annual giving, it's always been hard to track whether or not someone makes a direct gift from an email from your uh, online giving portal. Now we're able to see that. So now we're able to see what is the customer journey going back to a for-profit world, what is that customer journey that someone is making in order to make a gift? So, And then from there, using AI, how can we formulate the most optimal journey to get someone to make an action? We want that action to be a gift, to make a gift, but the action could be just to visit the page. But now we're formulating a communication strategy based on all of the AI touch points that we've been able to do to formulate uh, someone to make a gift so that's kind of what we've been doing as of late really formulating the most optimal journey for someone to make a gift utilizing the different things that we are are doing and then i think to take it a step further and where i see kind of ai playing a factor you know with chat gpt i think that's the next evolution of how we're utilizing it really looking at it from a lens on i think uh it's could be doing now. I think they could be prototypes out there now. So I think it's going to be a one-stop shop in terms of uh, integrated database where you're able to see everyone within your database. You're able to put in a prompt. I want to pull all alumni who gave a $1,000 and I want to send them X, Y, and Z message. And it's going to spit out a message that you can then send from your AI tool that's going to go out to people and they can make a gift directly that's been automated to that particular person. So I think you're going to see more integrations of AI into uh, these other data, larger databases that we have, whether it's Illusion or Blackboard CRM, you're going to see a lot more of that integrated into, I think, everyday life.
1: Do you see a time when when the actual content is being developed? Like, so could you imagine that appeal letters would be written using artificial intelligence? I think
0: so, and that's where that prompt where I was just talking about, like, we'll be able to build a prompt, but I think there will always be a need for a human element Um, because a- with AI, there's always, you're pulling from different data sources. So of course, it's going to learn, but I think in order to really have that soft touch and the, really the uh, appeal to the heartstrings of people, you're still going to need a human touch to edit it. So I think AI is going to be really good for that first draft of the communications. And then are having someone to go back and edit what AI has drafted,
1: if this artificial intelligence gets so sophisticated, are we even going to need gift officers? Could we also be facing something where the artificial intelligence gets so sophisticated that the role of fundraisers, well, it's, whether it's writing an appeal or, or conducting segmentation or even sort of responding and cultivating a relationship with a donor, is it reasonable in your mind that could all get replaced? Great question.
0: I think it goes back to like Terminator. and
1: <laughs> Yeah, let's go there. <laughs>
0: Um, I, I I don't. I think AI is definitely going to get more sophisticated in the things that it's going to be able to do. I foresee it augmenting the work we do. I don't think it will ever replace what we do because I think within fundraising, there's always that the human element that you want to feel like you're giving to a person or giving to someone that's going to steward your money in the best way. And it's kind of hard to do that when AI or the machine is the one that's facilitating a lot of those conversations because you know, one thing that we've learned in general, like you can close gifts via Zoom. You can, you know, have visits via Zoom. And that's one of the things that came through the pandemic is digital fundraising is here to stay in the way that you engage with your donors that's across the country. You can do that via Zoom, but also we've also realized but in order to still close a lot of those larger gifts, you have to meet in person. You have to get to know that person. A lot of that cultivation is really built over years. Unless AI is able to really build and cultivate that relationship over five years, I think it's going to be really hard to replace that. Um, I think it's going to make our jobs a lot easier. I think it's going to, as we go into those conversations with donors or as we create these marketing plans, I think AI is really going to help to uh, streamline a lot of our processes. Is going to make our job a lot easier. So now you look at it from a standpoint, what's the other 25% or what's the other 50% of our job going to be now? because AI is helping to do those minute things that we had to spend half our day doing before. Now we can do that, AI can do that in an hour. So now how are we streamlining or what are the additional things that we're adding to our um, job description that's gonna make sure that we're you know fulfilling our obligation to the institution?
1: I just had a ridiculous thought. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm just wondering if we'll ever see ourselves like, if you'd like to speak to a gift officer, a human gift officer, you make you need to make a gift of at least $100. Oh,
0: <laughs> so it, it almost replaces the model of like, um, <laughs> I know, uh, alumni memberships, maybe mm-hmm. pay $50 to be a member, and then a lot of institutions got away with alumni membership. But if you make a gift of $50 you still or $100, you still get those benefits. So it's kind of the same model, where if you make a certain level gift, you still get that personal connection to the institution that you want to have that could be it
1: no, i guess now that i think about it if you want to have breakfast with the dean we're going to need to see a gift of at least five thousand dollars i mean that's not that's not crazy i think we see things like that within our strategies we don't say it that way but if you'd like to go to the the presidential dinner this year the president circle dinner uh please consider a gift of ten thousand dollars or more i mean this is that that's not that's not even ridiculous that's sort of our strategies in many ways. So So does it
0: become, I guess, as a follow-up to you, does it become a more sophisticated give the get campaign where you're really just, you know, setting a price point in which someone has to make a donation to even get something. So is it, does it become more transactional in the future because you have AI kind of facilitating that? Is that where we're moving towards?
1: Ken Amore was the Dean of Students at Boston University and now he's the uh, president of Dean College here uh, outside of Boston, which is where I'm talking to you from. And I was having a conversation with him about artificial intelligence not long ago. Um, and we were talking about the future of higher education and sort of what, what higher education was going to mean, particularly in this world of artificial intelligence. And he said, I believe that college is going to be the place that students go to learn how to be human. Mm, and I thought awesome. that is, that is something else. And I, I wonder if that becomes, Uh, such a valuable concept, the idea of like a human and human connection in a world that's filled with artificial intelligence, that people will pay a premium and people will even think about their philanthropy in the context of connecting with humans. Uh, So this is fun stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit, uh, it can be a little scary, um, but I think that we're going to have to kind of open our minds to imagining what the future looks like because it's coming one yeah, way <laughs> it's coming
0: we like or not. So I think it's it's better to brace for it. And I'm I'm a planner at heart. So I, I try to brace for things, even though I, I may not know exactly what it's going to entail. But try to think through that. And I think AI is definitely one of the ones that it, it's coming, it's here to stay. So I think we really have to adapt now with you know you're going to get kind of left behind on how to best to utilize it for your institution.
1: Yeah. Well besides Artificial intelligence. Let so me I could stay on this topic for a long time, but so maybe let it's step back a little bit. You're currently running the annual giving program at Oregon State University Foundation. You've been there for how long? Uh, it'll be six years, six years come August. All right. And you've definitely made a name for yourself as a leader in this field, right, in the annual giving space. But what do you, what do you love most about annual giving?
0: I think I, what I love most is that it uses both sides of your brain. I think it's the one part of fundraising where you have to know. I think you, you still use it in major gifts, but I think it, it's still a strategy element to that. But I think uh using the art and science of it, like you have to craft this beautiful message or this beautiful direct mail piece to get someone to make a gift or, you know, uh the science side, looking at the data analytics, and how do you segment your appeals in a way that makes sense for your audiences? And really, I think I look at it from a a challenge standpoint. I think you have, you know, depending on your donor base, a half a million alums or two hundred thousand alums. You know, I think I take it as a challenge of how can I how can I find a passion of the that they can give to, you. you know, I always tell people this, no matter what you're passionate about, I can find a funding source or I can find a fund that you're passionate about to give to. So I really take it as a, a challenge and I really like the strategy portions of annual giving because it's, it really allows you to use both sides of your brain and really uh, the work can be hard, don't get me wrong. There There's a lot of hard things that, that that come with it, but I think it's rewarding in the fact that you're able to provide access for students and need to provide access to the different programs on campus. And I think that's the rewarding side of the challenging things is that, you know, on the other side of the, the fence, there is something that's going to, you know, help the institution. But I think annual giving has always been at the forefront of uh, innovation within fundraising. And I think that's what I like to, um, each day is going to be something different in <laughs> each year for that matter. And I think more than anything, annual giving really has to adapt to the landscape and what's happening in the economy or what's happening within the political landscape because eventually that trickles down to what you're doing for your strategies. I think one good example of that within the last past couple of years, just with the elections and everything, especially within Oregon, we were bombarded with direct mail pieces, phone calls, texts. And then now as you start to do your annual giving strategy for all those Oregon people, are they going to respond to direct mail pieces or emails because they've just been hit hard in the election year? Or uh, as the, you know, they haven't said we're in a recession, but I think a lot of the numbers are acting as we're in a recession. And within that, usually that below $500 group stops giving. So how do you get those people back on board? How do you shift those strategies? And I think that's kind of the beauty with annual giving. And what I like is like, it's a new challenge every day and you really have to be, um, up on your game, so to speak, to really adapt to what's going on, whether it's the economy or, the politics that happening or the stuff that's happening at the institution, the experience that they have. There's a lot of things that you have to factor in in order to, to get someone to give. And I think I really, uh, really like the strategy and really being able to peek into someone's brain and see why they may or may not giving. And then that rewarding part after all those conversations, getting them to give after they may not have had a good experience. Now you've kind of built that relationship and able to make them make a gift to the Black Cultural Center or to the, you know, food pantry, to something that they care about.
1: Yeah. You know, we did a poll not too long ago through Annual Giving Network that asked people what they love most about annual giving. And the, the number one answer was the metrics, and, which wasn't a huge surprise. I mean, I, having worked with annual giving professionals long enough, they, they do love numbers. Yeah. I, I love most. a good Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the second number one answer was the cyclical nature of it so you know it that hey this is every 12 months you have a new fiscal year but i i'm hearing what you're saying too and even within that sort of predictable cyclical pattern every year is different right and, i mean the last few years have been especially different but uh, i think i think uh a lot of people would sort of fall into one of those two categories, but I'm with you. It's an art and a science. Okay. So on the other side of it, if that's what you love about it, what worries you? You have a new little one at home. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You look, you actually look very well rested for now.
0: He's been sleeping a little bit better last past couple of days, but you know, it's up and down.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll get used to the up and down. That's that. That'll be the pattern. So, but, but that's great. Congratulations. So, Besides, besides the new little one, what's you know when you think about the world of annual giving, what do you what are you worried about for the industry?
0: I think I, the donor pipeline. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, with the having a little one now, you think about what does the next generation of philanthropists look, like, especially with the decades uh, for this matter, decades uh, worth of trends of you know declining donors, you know dollars up, donors down, and then with the new. Uh, diminishing, you know, higher education value, how does that play a factor into you truly building your pipeline? So now we really have to think outside the box into how we cultivate this next generation of uh, philanthropists. And I think a lot of it uh, is through causes. I think people are are, are philanthropic at heart. And, you know, there's a lot of statistics that are, that are out there that says, you know, a lot of this next generation, they're philanthropic, they may not be giving to the institution at this time, but they're philanthropic in their own right. So, how do we really tap into that grassroots efforts? And it's really finding um, a way to make your institution relevant. And it goes back to that perception of the value of higher education. Because a lot of people say, "Why should I donate? The university has all this money." Or, you know, my experience wasn't great. I don't really, really want to get back to an institution that, you know, did this to me. So, I think you really have to look at it from a standpoint of how can we really highlight the value of education. A lot of that is, you know, I I think higher education really unlocks doors for a lot of different people. And I think tapping into that more, but also tapping into the landscape of how how we're engaging our individual communities a little bit better within the institutions that we serve. And I think that's where we really move the needle and some of the things we've been able to do at Oregon State University is really tap into the notion of um, cause-based initiatives. And within that, how we kind of position it is, like you know, I said this before, our people are giving to all these other nonprofits. They may not be giving to Oregon State, but how can we position Oregon State as one of those philanthropic nonprofits that they want to give through? And this is through the causes, you know, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's cancer, whether it's you know, access, uh, whether it's um, mental health, how can we really position our institutions to show that we're Kind of leader within this space, but also how we're providing solutions to this particular cause within our community. And I think that's where we're going to move a lot of the needle is really, uh, that community, community based fundraising, but also through that, how can we show more transparency within where the dollars are being spent? And I think that's the biggest thing that we're seeing now and the transition from the, the boomers to the millennials is that, you know, there's no longer obligation to get back to institutions that the previous generations have. They just gave, just gave, I went there, I should get back. But now the, the newer generations don't have the obligation to get back. So now we kind of have to create this environment or create this community that's intentional about how we're really serving and providing solutions to the different issues that are happening. And a lot of this it's through causes or through different other things that are happening at the institution. So I think pipeline development, to kind of look back, pipeline development is really the thing that I'm worried about uh, in a society that is devaluing higher education. And I think you made a good point earlier about the human element of higher education and how moving forward, I think a lot of institutions, we're going to go to college to become a better human. So how can we tap into that as we're kind of build out these fundraising initiatives, how can we tap into that human element of getting someone to get back to the institution? So I think that human element is going to be really critical to building that pipeline. And it really goes back to that community element and something that's relevant to them. That can be hard because sometimes we don't have things in our system of what people care about, or they could have graduated from the College of Business, but now they're, you know, they're a chef. They care about sustainable foods,
1: Maybe that's one of the big roles of artificial intelligence is is to is that intelligence to help us get a little more intelligent to understand what is it about these humans that went to school here, what are their interests, and so we can then tap into that and connect them with points within the institution now i want to i want to dig into something you've said twice. I'm paraphrasing, but i think I think what you were saying was there is a decline in the perception of the value of higher education, so I just want is that? Do you believe that to be true? Do you think people, because certainly the cost has gone up, yep. and some of that's inflation, but that the cost of higher education is is quite large. As someone with children thinking ahead, I'm like, wow, that's going to be really expensive. But is that what you're saying? Do you think people are questioning that that a college degree is worth as much is worth the money?
0: I think there's been some studies that's you know with the decline and their Anticipating, I forgot the report that where it was coming from. It's some through case, but it was saying that you know over the next decade um, or so, enrollment is de- done a decline at a lot of public institutions, and a lot of that is because the devaluing higher education. I think with the rising costs of higher ed, um, I think when I was in school, tuition and and boarding room was maybe twelve thousand, and that was in state. At your state, now you're probably looking for an in-state student now closer to 30. So it's doubled in 20 years. Yeah. So now you're paying, you know, over the course of four years, five, really the the average for most college students is four and a half to five. So now you're looking at, you know, $120,000 education. And then with most students, once they come out, they're not getting a job that's going to offset the amount of debt that they have, and that, I think that's where you're seeing some of the devaluing education is yeah. the amount of money that you're putting into it. A lot of the college graduates aren't getting jobs that's allowing them to live uh, at a reasonable rate.
1: So that's what you're you're basically saying people are graduating with debt, yeah, and the the their degree because I I you know I can remember reciting statistics at some point not that long ago that said that. Yes, college is expensive, but if you don't have a college degree, you're not going to have the earning potential. So even though you might incur some debt over your lifetime or just in the first several years in the job, you're going, your earnings are going to be so much higher. So I think what, what I'm hearing you say is a lot of that's being questioned and people are saying, well, maybe there's the value of higher education just isn't there anymore. So maybe we don't need a degree.
0: And I, and I think as well, one factor that plays into that is like, I think initially um, a lot lot more people were going into college, um, roughly so, but I think you're starting to see a shift, a lot more people going to skills trades because we need those, whether it's plumbers, electricians, there's always things that need to be built or things that need to be worked on. So I think you're starting to see that shift. Like I could go to college, but also I could be a really skilled electrician or be a skills trade and be... Make a lot of money because I knew some friends come out of high school that were making really good money as an electrician or a plumber. And, you know, me coming, getting my degree, I wasn't making as much as them because they kind of had a a head start. And we talked a little bit about it, the earning potential over time. But I think that could even out now, especially with the inflation of things, what it costs to build a house or what it costs to do certain things has skyrocketed so much. So I think it's almost offsetting some of the industry norms that we're starting to do. Or
1: this. So get ready for this one, Tyrell. My I, my 11-year-old son, I don't think a morning goes by that he doesn't ask me. And he, he's 100% serious when he asks, do I have to go to school today? <laughs> I said, well, you do. You do have to go to school. And he says, why? And I said, well, because you're going to learn. And then he says, this is every morning. It's the same dance. I could learn a lot more on YouTube. <laughs> There's a part of me that's right. You, I, you're right. Um, But but that's not what we're going to do. You're going to school. And maybe this brings us back to what Ken Elmore said. You know, there are other elements to education and it's learning how to be human. We're developing relationships and a network and and learning all within that context.
0: Yeah. And I I, I think you make a good point. I think um, I think historically, I think within society in general, I think one of the things that we've been taught is like you graduate high school, you go to college and that's what it takes to be successful. But now what has been shown over the last decade, and I think the evolution of TikTok and YouTube, there are different ways for you to be successful without going to college. So it goes back to, do I really need to go to college to be successful where I could be a YouTuber and make, you know, $2 million a month, <laughs> you know, being in my house, gardening outside or whatever the case is, I can make money doing the most random things and I don't need college in order to do that. Mm. So I think that's where you're getting the the mindset shift is like in today's digital world, there are so many avenues for someone to receive information and output information that they no longer need an institution in order to do that. You know, I could, you know, probably go on YouTube and learn how to, you know, build a house from scratch. <laughs>
1: you could. You have to. Some- or a crib. <laughs> yeah. Well, in all seriousness, I mean, we definitely have our work cut out for us. And and for those of us who who care about education and care about educational institutions, and I think for those of us who work in annual giving, trying to raise money and increase the pipeline of donors that are gonna support educational institutions, we definitely have our work cut out for us. So with that in mind, as you think about the pipeline of future fundraisers, right? Those who are sort of coming into annual giving and their eyes are wide open and they're excited and they want to they help these educational institutions. What advice would you, if you could offer like one bit of advice to somebody coming into the field who's excited they just got their first job in annual giving, kind of take yourself back when you got your first job in annual giving, what do you wish that Tyrell today could, could say to a young Tyrell who's just getting started?
0: Uh, I think one of the biggest things is to be a sponge. I think you don't know what you don't know. I think it's important to come into a space with a blank slate. There's a lot of articles and things out there about what annual giving is. But to be a sponge, research, I think one thing that really helped me early on is, you know, allocating an hour out your day to do research on the trends that are happening. What are other institutions doing compared to what you're doing? And how does that apply to your institution? And then from there, you know, let's add in strategies. Uh, once I first started at Watch State, the big thing was giving days, you know, or giving weeks, giving months. That's where, where a lot of it, um, started. You know, Columbia was what one of those early ones for the state, uh, with the big give was, was one of the early ones as well. So, uh, that kind of translated to Washington State, us having kind of our first giving week called the Heart of Crimson, which was around Valentine's Day, get to what you love, kind of how we positioned that. So. That was kind of part of me being a sponge, but I would say the other part, something that I would tell up and coming, uh, fundraising and annual giving is I think being intentional about building community. And I think that's one, one of the things I've been doing a lot more of being intentional about building community amongst the annual giving professionals. People always say like, you know, a lot of people are like, when I'm at a conference, oh, you know, such and such. But I think a lot of that is just being able to network and build that community. And now I, you know, I have a Rolodex, so to speak, of people I can call upon if I have an issue or there's a particular thing like, man, I'm seeing this in my dad. Are you seeing the same thing? And I think that goes back to building that community and being intentional about networking, I think is, is one of the things that I tell people. Don't be afraid to do it. I think sometimes it can be hard, but I think in the long run, if you're able to be intentional about building that community, it's going to help you. And I think the last thing I, I will kind of talk about is finding a mentor. I think that's the biggest thing. I think early on, didn't necessarily have a mentor that because i didn't know what i didn't know at that time i think i kind of learning as as you go but i think as you start to go within your career having a mentor helps because some of those situations you haven't been in they've been in or they know people that've been in those situations so i think it helps to get advice from people that's been there sometimes we think we know it all but we don't know it all <laughs> Um so it's important to get um kind of feedback from people that's been there. And I think that's been something that I've really uh grown in the space of, I think, mentorship and being able to find mentors that's been there or find, uh, I think, in, uh years ago, I think a presentation I went to is finding kind of your own board of trustees, finding a board of trustees that you can call upon to give you advice, whether it's, you know, about a certain thing or about careers, you have different people within your circle that's going to give you um, kind of advice depending on things. And I've been able to develop that within my career is finding different people that can give me different advice depending on what what it is. And that's been helpful for me. And what that's tra- translated within my career is being able to pay it forward and give back as well. So I think that's one of the other things that um I've been doing more of is finding different ways to mentor up and coming uh, fundraisers, uh, being able to pay it forward. and. Talk about those lessons learned.
1: Yeah. Well, Tyrell, uh, that gets to the heart of, of what we're hoping we can do at Annual Giving Network. And you've been a great mentor to, to so many. And we appreciate you spending your time today telling us your story and, and sharing your thoughts. All the interesting stuff. So uh, we, we appreciate you and, and glad you could be with us today. Tyrell Warren Burnett, thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. It's been
0: a pleasure. To learn more about our membership program and everything AGN has to offer, visit our website at annualgivingnetwork.com.